Welcome to the McMillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Tariq Thatchell, an assistant professor of political science and a research fellow at the McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Professor Thatchell's research focuses on political parties and party voter linkages, social movements, ethnic politics, and South Asian politics. His work has appeared in Comparative Politics and Contemporary South Asia. Today we'll talk with him about his recent paper entitled Embedded Mobilization, Non-State Service Provision as Electoral Strategy in India. In it, he looks at how religious nationalists in India use social services to expand their electoral base among the poor. Welcome, Professor Thatchell. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with an overview of your paper and some of the questions you address in it. Um, sure. Uh, put most broadly, I guess the paper was really interested in trying to examine how we get unlikely situations of voting and mostly how do parties of the rich ever appeal to poor voters. And in fact, in low-income democracies like India, um, all parties, regardless of who their primary base is, have to make at least some inroads among the poor in order to be successful. And um, so what I got interested in is how does the party that's understood as the party of the elite in India, which is um, the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, how do they actually try to make inroads among lower caste voters? And um, essentially, this was a way for me to look at two questions. First, how do rich parties attract poor voters? And secondly, how do religious nationalists attract those who are considered far removed from their ideology? Um, because the second thing about Hindu nationalism was that it was historically understood as an upper caste phenomenon. It was something that was popular among upper caste Hindu elites. And it was, in fact, lower castes who were understood to always be far removed from what the movement preached about what Hinduism was, what it took to be a good Hindu. And um, for those reasons, I was interested in seeing how did this party go about the difficult task of appealing to these voters um, for whom it could offer little in terms of its economic policies, which largely favored the rich, in terms of its ideology, which largely favored upper castes. Um, so given that situation, what could they in fact do? And um, the, the basic argument that I make in the paper, which is taken from my dissertation, um, was that it wasn't anything that the political party did but instead um, work that its, pro that its partners in the wider social movement of Hindu nationalism did, which was to provide basic social services, so very basic schooling, very basic medical care, um, the type that's common among other religious movements uh, worldwide. It was those services that really created the breakthrough for Hindu nationalists in parts of India. And so the paper that, that, that you referenced was looking at how that process actually took place. And how did you come to write the paper? Uh, what about this topic interests you? How did you get drawn to it? Well, um, I actually didn't think about writing it when I went to graduate school, but um, what interested me was that the 2004 uh, national elections in India took place um, early on while I was in graduate school, and the results, in that results, it was the Hindu Nationalist Party that actually lost the election. Mm -hmm. And so I was reading headlines about the elections um, that were trying to make sense of um, why they had lost, because most pundits had expected them to win. And uh, the consensus was that it was actually the poor who had uh, voted them out of office. Uh, the party had run on a platform called India Shining, which was meant to showcase India's achievement and arrival on the world stage. Mm -hmm. And while that was seen to play well with middle-class urban voters, um, it was seen to kind of denigrate the, the experiences of the poor who had been continuing to suffer, um, even through India's economic boom. So Pandit said this was the poor voting out the rich. 
Uh, but when I was looking at some of the survey data that came out of that election, that didn't seem to be the case. And there were several states in which Hindu nationalists were actually the lead vote getter among these lower castes. And that just didn't uh, fit with what experts and conventional wisdom understood to be their appeal. This was always understood as an urban, middle class, upper caste party. So how were they winning these voters? And so um, trying to explain that, that's what got me interested. It was just a puzzle, a very local puzzle based on these election results, and it turned into something bigger and, and, and more substantial. So let's talk about your methodology. How did you do your research? Um, it was a little bit tricky because of the, the research topic, so it took several steps. I mean, the first thing that I was looking at was basically trying to understand how uh, f and where these service organizations, uh, organizations are actually strong. Mm -hmm. And um, so that involved getting a lot of data looking at um, you know, where are these chapters actually built, um, in which states in India, which districts in India are they the strongest, and are those also the states and districts in which uh, the party is doing well with these voters. Um, and so that was the kind of first national level look. Based on those results, based on finding out which areas of the country were these organizations in and was, was the party doing well, um, I selected um, some cases for more in-depth analysis. And so basically what I did was I looked at um, one case um, the case that the paper is based on, mm -hmm. where they succeeded, where these service organizations were present and they clearly seemed to be corresponding to higher votes for the Hindu nationalists. But I also looked at a couple of cases where they've tried. These service organi organizations were there, but there weren't the, um, the resulting electoral gains that we would expect for the party arm. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to see where the situations in which it seems to work and where does it not work. Um, and then within each of these states, I did a mixture of um, my own surveys to see whether where the service organizations were, whether the individuals that they were getting um, and, and benefiting were the ones who were actually turning their votes for the BJP, for the Hindu nationalists. Um, and I also did a lot of interviews with uh, the providers, you know, trying to track how they went about their service provision, how did they actually get people who didn't trust them lower caste people who weren't trusting of upper caste activists to actually even come to their schools, even accept the benefits that they were offering, um, and also talk to ordinary voters to say, you know, what did they make of these services? What did they make of the party based on these services and things like that? So there's a lot of different steps. Okay, and who are the providers and, and what are the services that you're talking about? Um, Give us some examples. Sure, um, so the providers are mostly activists with the Hindu nationalist movement. And mm -hmm. in the first generation, these tend to be upper caste urban men who often leave their families uh, located in cities and travel into um, areas where lower castes and tribals, Indian, Indian tribal populations live, uh, which are often very far away from their home. And so this obviously involves a lot of sacrifice and is uh, due only to their very intense ideological commitment to the movement. Um, and so they tend to be young um, and often have very long stints of 10, 15, 20 years. Sometimes their family will later come out and join them. Sometimes they don't have families. They're wedded only to the movement. Um, so that's who they are, and I spend a lot of time with these guys trying to figure out why they did this, why they decided to do this, and how successful, what kind of obstacles they faced. Was it hard to find these individuals? That's, I mean, that's pretty, that's an amazing um, it's, thing. It's, it's, it's hard initially, but these networks are very tight, and they're mm -hmm. very tightly controlled to the central movement. So if you can make inroads, which I did, um, while I was doing some initial field work in the capital. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this is through words of mouth. It's, it's getting cell phone numbers or, or getting addresses and showing up and waiting. And often you get turned away initially, but over time, 
uh, that's often what took the longest time was just making that first step. Mm -hmm. But once you do and, and, and you're accepted and, and, they, and they trust you, they're a very tightly networked, very organized group. And so you can very quickly meet many more people within the network. Okay. Um, the services that they offer are actually very basic. Um, th we're not talking about you know, big school buildings and fancy hospitals. Most of the time we're talking about a single activist located in a village who will run a school a one-teacher school, but there's not even often a physical building. So he mm -hmm. will just take, mostly he, sometimes she, will just take a space, um, any open space in the village, um, a room in a house if somebody is willing to donate that, um, and teach class in that for three to four hours a day, mm -hmm. sometimes longer. Um, the hospice care is likewise the very same. They, get, they go to a central dispensary run by the organization once a month, get very basic medical supplies, and are distributing them. But this is in the context of Indian villages where you know, the number one killers are highly preventable, whether it's um, dysentery or, uh, or malaria. And so even you know, giving out quinine or um, just mixing simple sugar solutions for them can have a big effect. So it's very basic services, but they're still quite in demand in the places that we're talking about. Okay. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, basically you have these um, men going out into the country where uh, the lower caste mm -hmm. um, uh, people are living and they're providing these services and are they trying to um, talk to them about politics and, mm -hmm. you know, here, I mean, how does that work exactly? No, that's a really good question. So one of the things I, I was trying to uncover was, you know, if it wins votes, is it just that these voters are extremely grateful for what they're getting and they identify these activists with mm -hmm. the party automatically and so start voting for the party or is there something more that has to be done? And typically there's something more that has to be done. So mm -hmm. there is great material appreciation, but precisely because the party is not liked by most of these voters, when they first go into villages, they make no mention of politics. They mm -hmm. don't even mention very much their ideology, which they deeply believe in. Um, and the reason is that you know prior experiences where they did that, they actually got kicked out of these villages I because see. they were asking people to change their religious practice mm -hmm. or change their eating habits, et cetera. And so this time they went in and they just said, we're service providers, just come and take services, that's all we want to do. But over time, they started uh, doing things that definitely helped the party. So they used to recruit their students, for example, to become workers for the party. Mm -hmm. And once these students have been with them for a long time, they develop loyalties and are willing to do things like that. But they even sometimes, um, go around the village and try and spread political opinion, but they do this very discreetly. So mm -hmm. one of the things that they do is they spread rumors against opposition candidates. So they don't go out and, and campaign for the BJP. They don't ever want to do that. Um, but they do go and say, you know, I heard that this person um, has actually smuggled some money um, in the previous election, mm -hmm. or I heard this person faked his certificate uh, certifying that he was qualified to run this election, things like that. Um, and you know, because they're removed from party politics, because they're not a politician saying it, their teacher, often very respected within the village, um, that actually carries a lot of weight. And um, it's a difficult thing to measure, but ended up being a very important part of the story. Uh, yeah, that it it's very interesting to me because I would think that the people, uh, you know, I'll call it a village, sure. um, would catch on to the fact that this person is mm -hmm. really affiliated with this political party. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very interesting phenomenon. No, I think so too. And uh, this is uh, something I'm wrestling with. The first thing to note is that this is a relatively recent strategy. So it's only in the last two decades that these service chapters have really been built up. And it's really only in the last five or 10 years that we're seeing the switches um, to this party. So that's mm -hmm. one or two election cycles. The question of whether this can be sustained over time, whether they can retain this neutral status while mm -hmm. constantly lobbying for one side, I think remains to be seen. I think it's one of the great weaknesses of social services as an electoral strategy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I will say that I don't think it's that voters are being blindly fooled. I think it's more that they begin to respect these people and therefore respect their opinions and think that maybe the party is worth a shot. Right. Now, the flip side of that is if the party keeps coming to power and then implementing policies that continue to only help the rich, sure. that could be another source. So mm -hmm. whether this is a sustainable strategy, I don't know. It's done some remarkable things in parts of India and in creating coalitions we never thought we were going to see in Indian politics. But how long those coalitions could last is, is another story. Mm -hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> it's it's become a strategy to implement, um, you know, these people to go out into the field, and then to your point of um, them swaying the vote and then implementing policies. Um, do you see? Is there any research, or have you seen anything in terms of, you know, once the party gets uh, is elected and mm -hmm. is in office? Are they then going to try and implement policy right. that will help the people, everyone who voted for them? Yeah, I mean, uh, are things changing in that direction? Because that would be obviously a wonderful thing. Right. I mean, I think that the, the quick answer to your question is no. And this is one of the things that I try and uh, figure out in the paper is what makes social services attractive as a strategy? And one of the things I argue is that Social services are kind of a compensation, but it's on the cheap. So the party isn't actually implementing, say, land reform or uh, you know, vastly pro-poor okay. policies. But they're still doing something through these social service arms, but they can really concentrate their attentions on the rich, and these social service arms are doing this very basic stuff for the poor. So it's this nice way of, of you know, making uh, a coalition between rich and poor. Mm -hmm. But the party has been really unwilling to do things like, one of the big things in Indian politics is, what is the caste community that your candidates are from? And one of the big things that a lot of new parties that represent the poor in India are doing is they're giving more representation to people from lower castes. Mm -hmm. You would think that if they were gonna, the Hindu nationalists were gonna change their opinion, they would start visibly increasing the representation of, of lower castes within their own ranks. But they've been reluctant to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another potential thing that uh, you know it remains to be seen how long they're able to keep this up. One of the things that they've helped as that's helped them is that the states in which they've been successful their opposition isn't doing that much for the poor either. Mm -hmm. And so you always have to look at what is the comparison that's being made by voters um, in whom they're selecting. And so uh, my punch would be that this is going to continue to be successful where the main opposition mm -hmm. is going to be somebody who's not offering that much anyway. I see. Let's talk about um, particular surprises or any kind of difficulties you had in, in doing the research. Um, well, I think uh, you, you touched on the, this, the biggest surprise for me, which is how open people were particularly the activists, in talking to me. And they weren't open in the beginning, but this is a movement that's known for being quite tightly organized and not very um, uh, open, quite reticent about sharing their opinions. Um, but I found that the further I actually went away from Delhi, and most of my research was in fairly remo remote places, people were much more open with me, um, quite happy to talk, quite flattered that somebody was interested in their work enough mm -hmm. to come out there um, to talk with them. And so I think the biggest surprise with me was how warm they were. And these are people whose ideology I don't necessarily have a great deal of sympathy for, but over time, you develop personal bonds. Um, mm -hmm. People who look out for you, share, t take time out of their day for you, do much more than that to make sure you can get to villages or, uh, or whatever it is. And I think that was one of the biggest surprises, both finding access, but also what it did to me in, in my own personal relationships with these individuals. Um, in terms of uh, logistical dif difficulties, um, 
mostly it was just getting to these villages. I mean, these are not easy places to get to in most of the, the paper that you were mm -hmm. that you were referencing. Uh, the villages that I had to visit either for survey work or interview work um, tended to take a day or two. Wa a couple of times it rained on us and, and literally the road was washed away. So wow. I was stranded in the village for a couple of days. So um, things like that were made the research tough. Mm -hmm. but, um, but overall, yeah, that's, those were the things that stuck out. And um, what, what conclusions do you reach in the paper? Um, I think the main conclusion, one of the things is that this idea of what can so how do we think of social services as an electoral strategy, right? How, how can we think of these kinds of service provision, which is, you know, there's been a lot written about, about such service provision by uh, movements in the Middle East, um, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, movements in Southeast Asia, um, party movements in Southeast Asia, often affiliated with mm -hmm. religious movement. And um, I think one of the things that I'm trying to argue is that we can't just look at it as an exchange of of goods for votes. Mm -hmm. It's something more than that. Um, these, one of the things that makes it successful is that it's being implemented regardless of whether it wins votes or not for long periods of time and eventually is able to win votes over for, for the party. And it's precisely because there's a delinking of the political actors and the service providers that's making it so successful. And so I think that's one of the points I want to make. And the second is that there's a real affinity for service to be a strategy for parties of the rich. Um, and that in a lot of low-income democracies, there are these parties that are increasingly realizing that poor voters are going to need to be independently reached out to. And so it'll be interesting to see if other parties, um, you know, in many of the cases in the Middle East, these are not democracies. But as we're seeing, some of these areas are going democratic. It'll be interesting to see if service, social services emerge as an electoral strategy in those countries as well. So are you going to be following this and doing more work on this? Um, yes, very much so. I'm very interested in, in kind of broadening the scope of, uh, of this, this argument outside of India. I'm currently in the process of working on that. So it's going to be, I'm, I'm watching with great interest like everybody else for other reasons what's happening in the Middle East. Sure. But for me, there's a personal investment in mm -hmm. this as well. So okay. yeah, I look forward to doing that. Great. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing some of your work. All right. Thank you very much. For more information about Professor Thatchell and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.